0: Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show, about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we explore, we describe, we celebrate the principles and practices of workplace visuality, the concepts, the tools, methods, strategies, people, and results of letting the workplace speak. Informational transparency, the technologies of the visual workplace, this is what gets you extraordinary cultural alignment, robust, spirited employee engagement on all levels of the organization, not just supervisors and value-add associates, but everyone. You too. <laughs> you too. So we're going to continue, and we're getting down towards the end of our visual leadership series. But I just want to say before I begin the riff on uh, today's topic, which is visual metrics and We'll probably get into visual problem solving. Please drop us an email if you've got any questions, if you want anything, if you want to um, suggest a show or you want one of the handouts that are connected with um, our shows. The email is radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com. Send photos and your stories, requests for special shows. This email is yours, so please use it. I always respond. So far, we haven't been flooded with gazillion numbers of emails, so I can say, you write, I will respond, you will hear from me. It might take a little bit longer than I would like and that you would like, but I will definitely get back to you, I promise. And please visit us at visualworkplace.com, our website, where there is a, a walkthrough of all our products and all of our trainings and our online training systems and the kind of work I do on-site visual conversions, but also a lot of free material so you can continue to educate yourself about workplace visuality. There are now, I think we're up to 40 or 50 podcasts in this cycle, and we have over 100 articles. They're one-page articles, so they're bite-sized pieces, and they build in a certain way. I think you'll find them very informative. You can just download all of that. So... Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. (laughs) We are in the midst, as I said, of my series on visual leadership. We're actually pulling up the rear. Probably we'll do two more shows, and then I'm going to complete the series with two shows that are a little bit cosmic in in size. They're really talking about um, issues that impinge upon the enterprise on a very large level, morphogenic fields, and... Um, some stories that i think that you'll find interesting interesting that i believe have much to do with leadership we have moved through our executive leadership tools which is as you know you can tell me you can tell me you can do this part of the show yourself the osit the operation systems improvement template which is sort of like the house of toyota but i think better the x type matrix for translating company vision into projects and really driving for results, and also the war room, which I touched upon, which is not the same as a scheduling room or an obeya room, but it is really a room that is about strategy, about achievement, about driving for results because your organization is ready. You can't start there. You have to groom your own thinking, get your own clarity, start creating those projects, see what it's like to really resource to the level of your uh, capacity and capability, see what it means to say wait to the many and yes to only the few that you can resource. And then at that point, you are getting very, very close to thinking about a war room. But this is where the tools of the supervisor, supervisor supervisor-manager comes in, the other set of leadership capabilities, the executive set, defining and driving the corporate intent, and the supervisor-managerial set, which is about operationalizing that intent, making it real, making it live on the floor every day. And we're moving through those tools. We spent two shows on visual displays, which which are so important to give managers and supervisors a way to structure in their need-to-know and to become actively engaged in the layers upon layers of information that represent every workday, to be able to organize that, put it in an architecture, and see your operations behave they're going to behave right there through the data. This is not digital. This is not electronic. This is hands-on. I don't know if I ever told you this. Just a just a short anecdote about visual displays, but I was doing some work with Rolls-Royce and Darby Aerospace, and I remember the day that I walked into a, a plant that I was, uh, in this case, just visiting. was in Birmingham. And the plant manager of this massive plant, this intricate aerospace plant where they were making turbine collars and bla- blades. And he, everyone was rushing to go to his visual display and I rushed too. And they said, oh, you come and see this Gwendolyn, you'll just be amazed. And I've told you, I told you last time how important it is for the person who makes the display to really own it and to really like it, and to make it behave, and to get involved in it. It's not a passive medium. It isn't just writing up numbers. It's really writing up numbers, and through the touch intelligence of your fingers, understanding there's more to be discovered, and there's more to uncover, to get really engaged. And this is what I teach, and this is what I see, and this is what how I see people be successful at The layers and layers of data that make up their day changes all the time. And there he is at his board. And his board, which is about aerospace components, the metaphor that he had carved literally was of a racetrack. So, okay, that's pretty ordinary. But he had little horsies and he called them little horsies. And they were his big orders. And he would move the horsies, he called them horsies, along the track as they progressed through the operational floor, and he was so entirely into it that really, at some point, you thought, "Oh, these horses are alive! You know, these are these are animate beings." <laughs> and he talked through it, and I laugh only because it was so dear. It was highly effective. He completely owned it, and. He said, you know, for the first time in his career, he was really into winning the race. And there was something about that live metaphor that triggered in him both his imagination and his commitment. I will never fully understand it, but I know, and I knew when I was watching him that I was watching a magical phenomenon of workplace visuality, that that's how far it can take you, and that's how intimate the language could be. It was wonderful. So displays, getting back to our purpose, is one of the main tools. It is the first tool on the supervisor, in the supervisory set of leadership behaviors, becoming a leader of improvement on the supervisor level. The second tool, and it's going to be a double set, is what we're going to be talking about today, which is metrics or measurements, measures, and problem solving, and visual metrics and visual problem solving. I'll get to that in just a moment. The third is something called the roadmap, which is the friendly step down of your X-type matrix. It's a way of making the corporate intent extremely approachable and understandable and personal And step down to your area, to your department level. It isn't plastering your big corporate vision onto a welding cell wall. It's stepping it down into the language of welding operations or fabrication or purchasing or the dock quality. Okay? We'll get to that. And I think the next show may be our last show. I'm pretty sure I'll get through this today. It's not exactly a scan, but I've I've done a couple of shows on metrics and problem solving when I was doing the doorways about seven or eight months ago. This time, I'm orienting somewhat differently. I apologize if there's any gross repeats, um, but I am trying to give enough depth for you to understand that what we're talking about is liberating information and in the process liberating the human will. We're talking about embedding meaning into the living landscape of work, embedding visual language. Okay? So, and we call this, by the way, doorway, in my model, my 10 doorway model, this is called doorway four, visual leadership. Okay? Metrics and problem solving. The other part of doorway four is policy deployment, the Hoshan. And that was our X-type matrix, the OSID. And we'll leave it at that. So, so remember, we're going to be talking about visual measures now, part of Doorway 4 and part of this array of specific tools for supervisory managerial leadership. Metrics are the domain. They are owned by the ranking site executive, what you measure and why you measure is explained and required by the ranking side executive. We're going to measure this and that's why. We're going to get this kind of feedback in order for us to improve or to know or discover or change. There's one simple reason why a visual workplace is needed. People have too many questions. Some of them are asked, but most of them are not. And when people don't ask questions that they need answers to, they make stuff up. Or if they're not making stuff up, they're simply doing nothing. The non-visual enterprise is flooded with missing answers. I call them information deficits. They're not there. They're invisible. They're the enemy, but they don't exist. And because they're the enemy... I'm sorry, because they don't exist, they become even fiercer as an enemy. Everyone in the enterprise makes a contribution to the visual language of the workplace. Everyone must. But don't forget that the war against information deficits is why visuality exists. It is also why everyone has to participate in order to win this war. Yep. so company leadership is responsible for the corporate intent, finding and focusing that, driving improvements, and these executives, executive leaders, need the help of supervisors and managers. The step down is very, very real. Metrics are a category of seeing. Visuality is all about line of sight and metrics are measures measurements our are concentrations of data that allow us to understand the condition or the status of things like safety quality cost delivery maybe even morale maybe you have metrics that are sensitive to morale And the importance of measures has been around for about 40 years. I mean, very, very actively so. We have the balanced scorecard of Kaplan and Norton. They were, uh, Harvard professors, instrumental in driving home the point that the company needs to construct a set of relevant metrics against a template of categories, they basically came up with the notion of KPIs and balanced scorecard, the balance of what I mentioned before, SQCD, safety, quality, cost, delivery. So these metrics are important, but I want to make the distinction, as I have often done in our conversations about metrics, between metrics that simply tell Metrics that, I I say, metrics that monitor. Metrics that keep track of the behavior. The behavior of the machine, the behavior of the material, the behavior of your schedule, your on-time delivery, the behavior of your operators. They simply track it. They show it. I would feel very successful if I could convince you to be very skeptical about those metrics because all they do is tell you. They don't change a thing. They may motivate you as an operator or you as a manager to try harder or try different, but that's not a behavioral change model. That's motivational. And you know as well as I how flimsy Motivation is on the road to excellence. You really have to change things in order to achieve repeatable excellence. You might get lucky once or twice, but you have to change things. It's not about motivation. It's not about wanting to. It won't get you there and keep you there. It might get you there, but you won't be able to stay there. Do not overestimate, overvalue the value of your metrics that monitor. They are valuable and valued by managers because they provide line of sight. They allow the manager and the supervisor to see without knowing, <laughs> to see how things are, without knowing the nitty-gritty details. Because in a little while, these managers and supervisors are going to be called on the carpet and said, and, said and, and told, and asked, what's going on in 2086B? What's going on with our machines? What's the outpatient population look like? These are numbers, numbers, numbers. And they tell us something but grossly. They do not bring us to where, we have to where we can enter the riches of measurement. Measurement is there in order to illuminate cause. If your measure is not illuminating cause, then you have to make sure to rank it as a low-impact measure. It's simply telling me something. It's not telling me everything. It's not even telling me much. It's telling me one thing, that our quality defects were at this level. It's not telling me how to cure it. I can use it as a point of comparison to where we were last week or last month or last year, and that has some benefit. But there's no transformation in letting metrics that monitor Have too much say. They're simply the wrong form. Be suspicious of them and be suspicious if you're overvaluing them because what you're missing is a lot. By contrast, I would like to um, invite you to consider metrics that drive. I call them visual metrics. It's all metrics are visible, but I call them, what the heck, I invented it, so I call it metrics that drive, they're called visual metrics. They do more than monitor performance. They do more than just report back on data. Their purpose is to illuminate cause. And then anchored in cause, they have the ability to drive improvement down the causal chain until viable solutions are identified and installed. Used effectively, visual metrics can relentlessly bring us to breakthrough. The problem condition is eliminated, and the improved condition, and I'll have some other words for that in a moment, the improved condition is stabilized and stabilized through visuality. A visual metric is still a data point, it's still a quantum, but it provides feedback in segments. A visual metric, may I say, never collects data unless that data is going to be used immediately. Immediately. To do what? How used? To drive the metric in the direction of improvement. So this... condition of connection, the reasoning behind a visual metric, is to actually improve itself. This is a vital distinction in terms of outcome. You know, a lot of companies collect data just to analyze them, whether it's through a balanced scorecard or some other well-marketed technique, managers will collect feedback and organize a response that may or may not be true. (laughs) It may not be the truth. It may be fictitious. Hmm? Action is taken, but most of the time, the action that is taken is to collect more data. In organizations like that, acting on problematic data, on measure doesn't unmeasures it doesn't often happen in other words we collect the data but we don't do anything about it we just let them collect sometimes for weeks or months and the thinking goes something like this the problem is not going away by itself you know if we just wait a few weeks and keep collecting or months and keep keep collecting data the problem's still going to be there so what's the rush it's a kind of distorted, twisted way of thinking. (laughs) But then we have to ask ourselves, why do people continually collect data and not try to change it? So visual metrics by design are different. And I I just want to put you at your ease. If you're now collecting 12 different kinds of measures, or six, or five, continue collecting them. But this particular tool of visual leadership on the supervisory level is designed to uncover so you discover cause and you only need one of them. You just have one of them per area and you can let your, if you're working on the operations level, let your operators choose the metric because every department is a subsystem with a built-in feedback loop. That department is going to talk to itself about itself. It's a dynamic system. And so any metric you choose will reveal pretty much the full spectrum of behavior causality in that department. That's the way dynamic systems work. They're so reliable in that way. So visual metrics are there not just to monitor. You choose one. It can be machine downtime. It can be quality. You choose one. And you make it very, very concrete. You make it concrete in terms of segmentation, moving away from the abstract and identifying what are the layers that are in that metric that I can collect against that are so easy. If it's about quality, you can segment almost any quality data into a cluster of causes. And the way to do this is just do a simple relations diagram. In the center of your paper, in the center of your flip chart, you put a little circle and you can write the words and put it on a poster and you say, why do we have, why did we have 67 defects? Over the last 10 days or 67 <laughs> over this shift. You ask the why question and you answer it by just putting your answers around that center circle, connecting with a little rod. Draw a little rod, a little connecting line. Why? Well, the tool was worn, the material is bad. The operator wasn't properly trained. The wrong tool was used. The tool broke. The material was, the wrong material was loaded. The right material was loaded the wrong way. The incoming purchase parts were not certified. You'll have an array. Now stack them. You'll need a legend. And maybe you'll group them so that they're not quite as granular as I just described. Group them into larger chunks. That's fine to begin, but later you're going to get very, very granular because you're going to be curious. And you stack them. How many times did that happen? How many times was the defect caused because the tool was worn? Well, that happened twice. Two out of 67 why was the? How many times has, was the defect uh, uh, due to bad raw material? Oh, that happened twelve times. Okay, stack it, and you can size up your x and y type matrix. i um, sorry, your x and y axis. So you'll you'll size up your x atric, uh, I beg your pardon. You'll size up your x axis. Your y axis will almost always be time frequency. How often? And you stack these. You do that just for one spectrum of metric defects, machine downtime, delays, and you stack them. That's what a visual metric is. A visual metric allows us to see and therefore to act. So the collection of the data gets so close to actually solving the problem that it's only a hair's breadth away. A visual metric will almost always provide internal points of comparisons so that you are comparing the impact of bad raw material with worn out tools. You'll have those points of comparison and they will be very, very clear so what we when supervisors are moving into becoming a leader of improvement they want to be more effective they want to be able to do active problem solving all the time because they're leaders of improvement that's their job and so they have this improvement appetite They're kind of like barracudas. They're always hungry, and they're always hungry for the lunch called opportunity for improvement. And these metrics will begin to solve this hunger. Yeah? And they'll work with a group. They might even work in their own tier two meetings on hunting down a metric. But the metric is focused on daily segmentation and tracking of cause, the illumination of cause, daily. And if you can break that down too many times during during a shift, then do so. But this notion of causality is fundamental, and it's fundamental to the next step, the problem-solving step. The notion of cause is fundamental to creating or improving. Hmm. Not just solutions, but new standards, which is the true focus of problem solving and the true focus of causality. Causality includes good cause and bad cause. So what we want to do is stabilize the good causes, name them and stabilize them, and change or improve the bad causes or eliminate them completely. So as we morph from visual Metrics to visual problem solving. It's just such an easy bridge. So it is management that focuses on a set of metrics, you can call them corporate metrics, but there's they they cascade down to the site level, which is the line of sight for corporate and for site to be able to see how the operations behave. But the supervisor, the leader of improvement, who's the supervisor, will say, you know, I want to lead improvement. I have to know more. Let me take some of the energy that I invest in collecting this data and work it with my direct reports so they're able to give me data that is more granular, more specific, that I can segment and that we can stack so that we can have a more intimate, more complete, more detailed line of sight so I can see into the causal chain. And with those metrics in place, and by the way, this is the heart of the war room as well, where your executives are using stacked metrics in order to see and to drive, to make decisions. We shift over into problem solving. Problem solving with a definite visual bend which is part of Doorway 4 Visual Leadership and definitely part of this array of tools that we are have been talking about in visual leadership. I've already told you the story of my uh, <laughs> my cup of tea with Ryuji Fukuda back in 1984-85 and this really swank Toyota, I'm sorry, um, Tokyo Hotel. God, it was beautiful. And the tea that I was drinking was amazing. And as we talked, I asked him, Sensei, what is a standard? Because he kept talking about standards and standards. This this was my first study mission to Japan. It was 1985. And I... Just was asking, kind of to be, um, you know, to be conversant, to 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 talk. And Fukuda said, just as casually as I asked it, a standard, a standard, Gwen-san, a standard is made up of only those elements which, when not followed, result in a predictable defect or waste. Huh. <laughs> I dropped my coffee cup. I fell off the very comfortable chair I was sitting on, and I just went stiff as a board. They carried me out and shipped me back to the United States. I was stunned, huh? Listen to what he said. A standard is made up of only those elements which, when not followed, result in a predictable defect or waste. It was such an elegant and definitive definition of a standard that I knew it would take me almost a lifetime to just kind of live with it comfortably. It's one of those inverse definitions that cleans up all your questions. An SOP is made up of only those elements and you know what they are, that if you don't follow them, you're going to get a defect or a waste. You know exactly which which are the powerful variables. It was extraordinary. Fukuda called that a reliable method. He wanted to get away from the whole idea of standard because he discovered what I later discovered, that there's so much confusion about standards and standardization and SOPs and standard work and standard quotes, and they're all thrown around as though they're equal. But within the year, I began to work with a form that he had used in Sumitomo called SIDAC, cause and effect diagram with the addition of cards. He took the Ishikawa diagram and through a really elegant process of experimentation, he and uh, the quality team at Sumitomo found ways to amplify it, found ways for the problem solving to be extended and to be much, much more detailed than the Ishikawa could ever support. And he did it with the addition of cards, or you could say with the addition of post-its. This is today something that my company teaches, with Fukuda's permission, called scoreboarding. And it is a powerful way of problem solving. And the reason I bring it up now is because it works so perfectly with metrics that drive stackable Metrics that drive down the causal chain. So we're using this metric to illuminate cause and then we capture the cause on this format of a CDAC or scoreboarding. I've adopted a single format for this. Fukuda was much more elaborate. He had like six or 17 different ways of laying out the fishbone. But... I found it to be much more efficient to just give an option and then put the focus of the work and the development and the training on the use of that. And although it sounds like kindergarten, I found it to be very important when talking to people about problem solving, systematic problem solving, to put an emphasis on a good cause produces a good effect. And a reliable method is made up of good causes, and all of them have been tested, tried, and trued. And a bad cause, even one of them, in a series of good causes, will result in a bad effect. Let's find it. And this kind of clarity, the simplicity and the clarity of this discussion, I found to be extraordinarily helpful in introducing people to systematic problem solving. I, I'm okay with basic problem solving. I'm certainly, I can live with the five whys, but these, these are pretty primitive. These are pretty elementary. They don't allow for digging, and they don't allow much for going after complex problems, chronic problems that have many, many layers on many different orders of magnitude of cause, some of them simple and easily addressed, just do it. but some of them elusive, and they have to be broken into more understanding before they can be understood and, and addressed. So when your supervisors are becoming taking on the identity and the behavior of becoming a leader of improvement on the supervisory managerial level, you must provide them with powerful problem-solving tools. In some organizations, A3 is instrumental, but, ladies and gentlemen, it is an administrative tool. It will get you to some problem-solving, to some layers of problems, but it will not be able to address the chronic, the complex, and the costly. It just can't do it. It will give management a sense of control, but it will not cough up solutions that address the depth of the problems that you are contending with. 8D is an adaptation of SEDAC, came up towards. I don't know, 1989 or so. 8D is a kind of simplified version. 8D misses the last step, which I actually added to Fukuda's uh, procedure, which was to stabilize the solutions through visuality. I mean, many, many contributions to Fukuda's approach to CDAC, and he recognized it, and, and I was glad to do it. But we're talking about problem solving that actually solves problems. That's satisfying because you go down that causal chain. You name the causes. You hold on to those projects for two months, for three months. At three months, you have to reset. At three months, maybe it's solved, but if not, you reset. So the problem solving part of uh, becoming a leader of improvement on the management supervisory level is one of the 3 tools that makes you a manager of improvement a leader of improvement on the su- I should say a leader of improvement on the supervisory managerial level different than executive these problems are deep and to solve them you have to go deep called causality this is such a worthy task for supervisors they want to solve these problems and they are in a a really good position to do so because they're working with your operators who are either receiving the problems or sending the problems and causing the problems so you've got the makers right there, reporting to the supervisor. And operators do want to solve their own problems. They really do. And they have lots of ideas. Do you give them an opportunity? Or do you instead relegate those solutions, the solution making, to a technical staff? What a mistake, what a mistake. The model of change is so consistent in terms of causality. If I cause it, I know it. Please allow me to change the cause. If the cause is out of scope, I'll let you know. I'll let you know I can't handle it. It has to do with the purchase of materials. I'll let you know I can't handle it. I don't have the authority to change that particular SOP. Or an ECN is needed, and i that's way out of scope for me. So this kind of aligned problem-solving is the hallmark of a mature, transforming operation, an operation that is pursuing excellence. And that is the domain. That is the chunk, one-third of what supervisors and managers can contribute. In the plants that I have worked with, I have seen a lot of hiding about the quality of the problem-solving. And almost without exception, unless they're already a prize-winning plan, in which case they don't invite me in, problem-solving is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, opportunity for growth, stabilization, change, profit, and it's handled so casually. It's handled through basic problem-solving in the five whys. It's intellectually so dreary and incomplete that the problem doesn't get solved. It just gets patched through. It's only slightly, not even better, slightly different than firefighting. Take your problem-solving seriously. And in terms of this model, becoming a leader of improvement, that modality, the problem-solving modality, is the decision of the executive leader. The executive leader decides on the set of metrics that he or she wants line of sight on and the problem-solving in order to improve it. They vet, they decide, they choose, they pay for that that par- problem solving methodology. And then they get very serious about it because it's theirs and they want to see the results. They make the decision carefully and then they support the decision. They expect results. This is the way the model works. In a way, the model itself is saying this model that I'm talking about with these two sets of three tools by saying no to other tools, and saying yes to the ones you know will work for you. This kind of knowledge or content decision can be influenced by supervisors and managers, but ultimately it is the executive's decision, and it's a powerful decision that will mark the future of the plant in a very concrete way, in the most concrete way. And moving further along, once the bad cause is either eliminated or turned into a good cause, once you've solved the problem, you have to take the next step to stabilize the solution through visual thinking. How do I embed that solution into the living landscape of my operations How do I make it real, concrete, and long-lived? And then the next step, is this a solution that would serve another part of the plant or another plant in my array, 540 plants or three plants? Can this solution help someone else? Is it a best practice, and should they know about it? What is your mechanism for populating proven solutions, another rather large gap in most companies' thinking. How do we get maximum use out of this solution by populating it elsewhere and everywhere? Is there a part of your process that does that? Some operators that I had the pleasure and honor of working with a number of years ago did this with their when they were implementing work that makes sense. But I want to change that because I didn't really work with them. They just bought our methodology. It was it's our online methodology. And as the boss and the trainers were training them, they went up to them and said, Hey listen, you're telling us that this is I driven, individual I, pronoun I driven. So could we please just train ourselves? Could it be eye driven And could you let us just train ourselves? Could it be that eye driven Well, said Marjorie, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. You want think you can do it? You want to do it? Oh, yeah, we want to do it. And they did it. And what they brought to the party was... They were going to make sure they got maximum mileage out of every single solution, visual solution that they invented. And they had this chart, this matrix, across the 11 production lines of that plant to see where the solution could serve on those other lines where it wasn't invented but it could still be used. They had this matrix and they'd go through it. Green, green, red. No, it wouldn't work here. Green, 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 green. Red, red, red. Next line, red, red, green, 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 green. You'd see this matrix of populating the solution, turning it into a visual best practice site-wide. So problem solving is very rich. And yes, you are going to have to solve the problem of improvement time because your supervisors don't have time. And yet they need time for improvement. If they're going to lead improvement, if they're going to be a Leader of improvement. And this is sort of where the whole visual paradigm begins to feed back on itself because to the extent that the supervisor is able to embed his or her need to know into the living landscape of work through visual devices, she is going to be relieved of so much of the so-called work or busyness of her day If the answers are part of the living landscape of work, she's going to be saved all those answers that she doesn't have to give anymore. All those questions that she used to be asked, that people can get their own answer now and pull the answer to them because she has populated her work with devices that share information reliably and repeatedly. That's where the improvement time comes from you see how the paradigm begins to support itself? And as that is multiplied through one supervisor, another supervisor, another manager, another manager, the workplace speaks. And suddenly, in a very true sense, your supervisors and managers feel as though their job has been taken away. They're no longer the answer man, the answer woman. They're no longer needed every single stinking second of of the day. They have time. They have time to grow. What will they do? How about leading some problem solving? How about metrics that drive, visual metrics? How about if you create a visual display to capture what's eating your lunch now and get that display to speak and get that monitor, that board it's called Monitor in Spanish. We just got off the phone a few hours ago. We were talking about this. That board to cough up its own metrics. What happens if I become a leader of improvement and improving means solving problems as part of my day? I'm going to have time for that if the workplace speaks. I'm going to have plenty of time, and you know what else is going to happen my identity is going to shift. And I'll, I'll no longer be that crazy person running around the plant with pieces of paper coming out of her pocket with the answers to questions that are only temporary answers. I'm going to be in control of my corner of the world. I'm going to grow. I'm going to lead. I'm going to be valuable. Not because... I'm the glue that holds everything together, but because I'm contributing, because I'm becoming a leader and I'm growing leaders. My job is to grow leaders. Wow, all those operators who are hungry for knowledge, who yearn to be part of the improvement contribution of their plant, I'm going to be able to do that for them. And as they grow, I'm going to grow some more. I'm going to go to Toastmasters and increase my platform skills. It'll cost me $26 a year. Oh boy, I'm going to have a new life. This is I came to work to be a hero 18 years ago. I'm beginning to feel that that might be a possibility. Wow, that's the way it works. So, I want you to think about these things. I've given you some broad brush. And I know that I've stacked it to favor what I favor, but I favor these things because they work. And even though they may not be part of the popular literature, they work. And they will change you and they will change the people you're working with. And executives, if you are listening, I want to encourage you to move in that direction, to think like that. Because the revolution is happening, and only part of it reaches the marketing level. The rest is deep change, change in people, change in us, change in you. You know, Sheldahl, many years ago, they were moving along this path. This was many years ago. We worked together a little while. And they changed their definition of a problem It used to be anything that's burning you up. (laughs) It's burning up material and cost and delivery time. And then it evolved and it became their favorite definition of of a problem was a problem is anything that inconveniences anyone downstream. That's almost unthinkable. A problem is anything that inconveniences anyone downstream. Can you hear the connectivity of that and the refinement and the evolution? It takes a while before you can change your definition of a problem, but that's something to reach for. I want to encourage you along this journey. I want you to feel the strength of your vision, to feel the strength of what you want, who you want to be and what you want to contribute, and know that visuality is there to help you Visuality is not a predetermined technical change. It is instead a language that captures the operational details of everyday work and embeds those answers, those details, into the living landscape of work, the very place where you're working. And it speaks to you because you gave it a voice. And you understand that voice because it speaks in a voice that is indeed your own, this is what this is about. Visual leadership is a component of that. We're talking about supervisors and managers next week when we meet. We'll finish up with the roadmap and some final uh, discussion about the whole model, and then we'll move on to more cosmic issues. Uh, I think. Do I have the grid right here? I might have the grid right here. I might. Ha- oh, here we go. Chaos, Fractals, and Leadership, and Leaders, Monkeys, and Morphogenic Fields. Yeah, should be very interesting. I like these shows. Thank you very much. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I had a wonderful time with you today, as always. I say to you, enjoy your journey. I hope visuality is a part of it. And let the workplace speak. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.